I am Glenn Butler, and I am here uh, once again. God damn, I hate life. <laughs> this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Precious little life forms, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where the Predator has no teeth. I am Glenn Butler, and I am back in the Star Trek Vintage Vault this week to look at Star Trek Generations. I am, of course, here with my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, what would you like to receive next Tuesday? Ideally, I guess a replicator. That would be pretty useful. Yeah, that would definitely help. I mean, a tractor beam would be nice, too, I suppose. And a medical staff is always helpful. But if I had my pick of the litter, I'd say a replicator. Absolutely. Now, we are talking about Star Trek Seven today. Star Trek Generations, as it's known, you know, like on the screen and everything. Yeah, Star Trek Generations, as it's like actually called, is actually the title of the movie. Don't give me guff. Don't give me inaccuracies. This is, of course, released in 1994, mere months after The Next Generation went off the air and was the sort of torch-passing ceremony of the Star Trek franchise. 1994 was actually a really big year for Star Trek. Next Gen was going off the air, DS9 was in its second season and beginning its third as this movie came out. They were getting ready to premiere Voyager that January, so there was a lot going on and... This is actually the one Star Trek movie that we're examining in this series that I've written about before, when Place to Be Nation was doing a sort of group look back at the year 1994, all sorts of anniversary articles that we did in 2014. You can find my look at 1994 in Star Trek on nation.com, an article titled, Cherish Every Moment Because They'll Never Come Again, Star Trek in 1994. You can find it on placetobenation.com by searching for that title, or go to placetobenation.com slash Star Trek, which has everything we've done on the site about the franchise. Of course, with so much going on in 1994, it was a pretty good time to be a fan, wouldn't you say? It was definitely if you were into the wider universe of the expanded franchise. You had the Next Generation finale, you had later that year, you had this movie that we're supposedly going to talk about in a few minutes. You had DS9 was really just hitting its stride. Uh, Voyager was in pre-production. Well, actually it was in production. It was going to premiere in January 95. So there were all sorts of set picks and rumors and reports and all sorts of things about the new series that was going to start. 
So there was a lot going on in the franchise that year. None of it really having anything to do with the original series called Star Trek, which had pretty much ended itself in 1991. Right, it seems like the 25th anniversary in 1991 had a lot more things about the original series than this whole kind of confluence in 94. It was really about the current stuff and what was happening in the current moment. Yeah, 1991 was a year that was all about the 25th anniversary of the original series and with Star Trek VI, the sort of finale of the saga of the original series. 1994 was a huge confluence of, like, everything else that that original series spawned. All three of the spinoff series all had big important things going on and it all just sort of confluenced together in this one year. Yeah, the Next Generation and DS9 were kind of trading story elements a little bit, and those story elements would go on to be used in Voyager, or at least they were nominally being prepared for Voyager. And meanwhile, Next Gen was going off the air kind of on a high, really, at least in the series finale. The final season... It was a little up and down, but that finale was just amazing. Yeah, there are people that criticize a lot of Season 7 of The Next Generation. I don't criticize it as much as others. I don't see as much bad in there as other people do, but the finale of The Next Generation is just stellar. As a Next Generation episode, as a finale for The Next Generation. Yeah, absolutely. And for a more detailed look... At the last season of Next Gen and the end of the second season, beginning of the third season of DS9, uh, find that 1994 article that I had. We are here today to talk about Generations, which, for all you were just saying about the original series really being over, Generations starts with just a little bit more of it. Yeah, that's always felt kind of weird, though, hasn't it? Yeah, it feels weird in a few different ways. I mean... After Kirk basically passed the torch in his final narration in Star Trek VI, doesn't it feel just a little tacked on to have this whole sequence still in that era? I don't know about tacked on, but it's definitely... They felt it necessary, and by they, I guess I mean Rick Berman and maybe some other people at Paramount. They felt it was necessary to have Kirk there with Picard in order to pass the torch, rather than just having... Star Trek VI be the send-off, and then let the next generation take over on their own. They really felt strongly, you know, we need Kirk to be here, to right there with Picard. Otherwise, I don't know. Picard's not a real captain unless he's on screen with Kirk at some point. I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. Yeah, that might be something of a studio mentality. Uh, speaking of Rick Berman, of course, he had been the producer and a major creative figure on The Next Generation, and this is the first time that his influence expands to the movie series that had previously been completely separate, but we're going to see in the next several movies that now they're being done by Rick Berman, who heretofore had been more of a television producer, and that's an influence on things as we go along. Well, the original series movies were handled by the people that have been handling them since 1982. By and large, yeah. Harv Bennett and intermittently Nick Meyer, and over the course of time, more and more Leonard Nimoy... These people have been handling the original series film franchise basically from the time Roddenberry was fired following the motion picture through the end of Star Trek VI. 
And once they started doing the Next Generation movies, those were done by the people that had been doing Next Generation for the past seven years, which was headed up by Rick Berman. Generations was written by Next Generation writers who had just written the All Good Things finale. It was the entire television crew that was brought over to do the Next Generation movies. So anyway, the people in charge of making the movie felt it was necessary for whatever reason to have Kirk and Picard on screen together. And so they tried their best to come up with a way to make it happen. And like most other story elements that come to be because some producer or studio executive says it should happen, rather than because a writer comes up with a story that involves it, it just never really works at all. It doesn't work in the beginning. I mean, the first scene on the Enterprise B is a fine scene. It's entertaining. It doesn't exactly showcase the three original series crew members in the best way, but it works as a scene. It works as a transition out of their era into whatever is coming next, even though it's not the next generation yet. Yeah, it it does kind of underline further some of the themes that have been going through the previous movies. I mean, we've been talking about how old they're getting in all of these things. And in the beginning of this movie, Kirk and Scotty and Chekhov are basically being hosted by the next generation after them, who are treating them like folk heroes and legends and stuff. Well, they're treating them like museum relics. That too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this we've been talking for six movies about how they're all getting old, and this is the movie that makes it most clear they are now obsolete. Right. And yet, that's the scene where it works the best. I mean, once Picard and Kirk meet in the Nexus, that never really gels. It never really works really well. Once Kirk shows up in the future, that never really works really well. It's just really obvious that Kirk is there because they wanted Kirk to be there, rather than because there was a really good story that involved Kirk being there. And it's important to note, I think, that Kirk and Chekhov and Scotty were not who they wanted to be in that opening scene. They obviously... Well, I think at one point they wanted all seven of the original crew members. Very early on, yeah. But ideally they wanted Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And much like you can see that Valeris's lines in Star Trek VI almost work better if she had been Savick, you can see that some of Chekhov's and Scotty's lines in that opening scene of Generations would have worked better if they were Spock and McCoy. Why is Chekhov inquiring about their medical staff and leading people to go medically treat the refugees? Why is Scotty spouting stuff about gravimetric fields and resonance bursts and stuff like that? Stuff he can't even say. It just sounds so fucking weird coming out of his mouth. Yeah, that is the one meeting of generations in this movie that works the least is the original series cast members reading dialogue written by Next Generation writers. This movie is written by Ron Moore and Brandon Braga, who had worked together a great deal on The Next Generation, had written All Good Things, the fabulous next-gen finale, right after they finished writing this movie, basically. That's true. I, I forget that sometimes. But yeah, because of production lead times, they actually wrote the TV finale after they wrote this movie that came out six months later. Right. They were kind of absent from the first block 
of the seventh season of Next Gen because they were busy writing this movie. And then they came back kind of mid-season, and you can see them kind of filter back into some episodes then, and then they filtered back out because they were busy writing the finale. <laughs> so there, there were kind of phases in that season in terms of who was available in the writing room. But, but putting Next Generation dialogue into an original series cast member's mouth works even worse because they're putting Spock dialogue into Scotty's mouth. So you've got, like, two layers of not at all a good idea. Right. And the effort originally was to get Leonard Nimoy as more than just a cameo. They had originally offered it to him to direct. Really? Yeah. <laughs> the, pr the problem there was that Leonard Nimoy had been an influence more and more in terms of the conception of the stories of the movies as they progressed. Except for five, because that was kind of Shatner's baby. Yeah. But he was a major figure in crafting the story for six. He was directing three and four, so he was involved to a great extent crafting the story for that. His demands for how he would come back determined a lot about Star Trek Two. So he had a lot of influence on the stories there. When they asked him to direct Generations, they basically presented him with the script and said, We would like you to direct this. He wouldn't have any influence on developing the script further, he wouldn't have any influence on the story, and he wasn't comfortable with that part of it. And he read the scene that he would actually be in and thought, this is pretty generic, you could put this in anybody's mouth, hell, you could put this in Scotty's mouth. And he was kind of proven right, I suppose. <laughs> well, he and DeForest Kelly, I think, probably made the better choice, where they both said, you know what, Star Trek VI was fine as a send-off for our characters. We're good to just stand pat and let the next generation people take over from where we left off. We don't need to be there. Yeah. And really, I don't think Kirk needed to be here either, except there were studio people who said Kirk should be there. And as a result, the sort of accidental characterization because of those decisions is that Chekhov and Scotty are now better friends with Kirk than they ever were before. Oh, ever shown in the movies, yeah. Like, the last time Kirk and Scotty were this chummy in the movies was in the shuttle ride at the very beginning of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah. Now, the people that brought the script to Leonard Nimoy and said, here's the script, we want you to direct this movie. Was that Rick Berman? Probably. Who was in charge of production? It would have been, I think. <laughs> and it's not like they hadn't had any contact. I mean, I'm sure they would have had to work together a fair bit when Nimoy was on Next Gen in yeah. 1991 for the 25th anniversary. But, you know, that sort of working relationship that Nimoy wanted just wasn't there. I know there were... I don't know if I'd go so far as to say problems, but there's a long story about the Next Generation television production crew trying to transition and make a movie. There are stories behind the reasons why the television director David Carson wound up directing Generations and why the television composer Dennis McCarthy wound up doing the score. I don't remember all the details now because it's been 20 years plus. But I know they were looking for other directors, they were looking for other composers, they were looking for, you know, other people to do it, and they just sort of ran out of time, or they ran out of options. The production was running long, and they needed to get moving, and so they just brought in people they knew from doing the television series. And they received a lot of criticism from that, although I don't think the movie suffered from it. I don't think the movie is badly directed, and I love the score, so I don't think either of those were problems. Right. But they did receive a lot of criticism for falling back on these television people to try to make their movie. 
I think that's kind of a condescending attitude, too. Well, yeah. I mean, it might not have seemed that way in 1994, but I think there's a lot more back and forth give and take between TV production and movie production now. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot more now than there was at the time. There's always been sort of an elitism of movie people that looked down on television people. And you see that whenever anyone thought they were popular enough to be a movie person, they immediately stopped doing television. Mm. Because nobody from the movies would look twice at a person who was still doing television. Because that was an obvious sign that they were not big enough to be a movie person, they were still a small television person. That sort of bright line distinction doesn't really happen anymore. Right. There's been the rise of prestige TV and a lot more back and forth. Yeah. You see movie stars getting TV vehicles. You see movie producers and directors involved with developing television concepts. You see television people make a movie over the summer and then go back to their series because that's the base of their popularity and so they're going to keep it even while they make movies during their breaks and whatever. There's a lot more intermixing and a lot less bright line separation between TV and movies than there was in 1994. We'll return a little later to the effects of the production decisions and the impression that Kirk had to be there and he had to be with Captain Picard. We'll get to that a little later when we're talking more about the latter sections of the movie. But to get back to this opening scene... I think it's kind of interesting that they have it on the Enterprise B, which is the only Enterprise we hadn't seen on screen before. They're kind of filling in that last gap. It was kind of theorized, and it was kind of a conjecture that it was an Excelsior-class ship. There was that model in the observation lounge in Next Gen, but we're actually on the ship here. We have a captain of sorts. Uh, Harriman gets a bad rap. He does. Circumstances conspired against him. Do you want to talk now about how circumstances conspired against him? Because I have a lot to say on that subject. Sure. Okay. So they're not even on a shakedown cruise. It's not even a shakedown cruise. It's a publicity stunt. He says explicitly, We just passed the asteroid belt. And our plans today are to go just past Pluto and then go back to Earth. Okay? They're still in the soul system. They're not even out with the gas giants yet. They're just about to arrive at the gas giants. They're not going to go... They're not even going to leave the Oort cloud. <laughs> okay? And they get this distress call. And, and he tries to pass it off. He says, send it on to Starfleet. We don't have systems installed. We don't have a crew. We're not planning on leaving the Oort cloud. Pass it on to Starfleet. We're in the fucking soul system! Certainly, Starfleet has some ship somewhere within range of the soul system that contains Starfleet headquarters and the Federation Council and the Federation's President's office. Certainly, there's some ship in range of the soul system other than a half-built ship with half a crew on a publicity stunt to the Oort Cloud. No, turns out, no, there isn't. There is no other ship in range of Earth than a half-built, half-crewed ship that's not prepared to go to warp. What the fuck is with Starfleet fleet deployment? Seriously. This has always been a problem, going right back to the motion picture, 
where the just completed starship was the only one in range, but at least it was completed! At least it had a crew! At least it had a warp drive and a tractor beam and all that kind of stuff! This ship is half built! They don't have a tractor beam! They, they don't have photon torpedoes! They don't have a medical staff! They have reporters and fossils and an inexperienced captain and half their systems aren't installed yet and they don't have a full crew and somehow they're the only ship in range of Earth! What the fuck, Starfleet? What the actual fuck, Starfleet? Don't blame this shit on Captain Harriman. He does the best he can with his bad lot. Can you blame the writers? I mean, this is kind of one of those tropes of Star Trek that you just have to accept eventually. I mean, in one, in five, you know, they are... They explain it better. One is the egregious example. Two, they're in some random sector of space. It's not like the only ship in range of Earth. They're the only ship that happens to be in range of this asteroid where they're doing research. And they're being specifically sought out. Five, they are specifically sent because of the fame of the ship and the reputation of Kirk. They're not the only ship that can go from Earth to Nimbus 3. They're the only ship that has the intergalactic reputation of James T. Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. Everybody knows about Kirk on the Enterprise except for Cybok, but we covered that. This is just so incredibly egregious. It's not even an operational ship that's the only one in range of Earth. It's a ship that shouldn't be out of dry dock, except they're on some stupid fucking publicity stunt. Trip out to the Oort Cloud. You're telling me that, that no, normally if they weren't on this publicity stunt, the only ship in range of Earth would be a half-built ship still in dry dock? No, I'm telling you it's kind of a narrative shortcut. I mean, honestly, I'm thinking that after this, all these people die on the ships, and Kirk is killed on the ship. I'm expecting one of these reporters to go to Starfleet headquarters and ask some admiral in charge, well, what the fuck happened? And the admiral in charge is going to say, well, you go on a rescue mission with the ship that you have, not the ship you might want or wish to have at a later time. That is the level of fucking incompetence that the Starfleet fleet deployments are being shown as. Has anyone long foreseen this doom? Talk about a backfiring publicity stunt, huh? Well, yeah, they just killed James T. Kirk. I mean, they invented the existence of news media in the Federation for this scene, and, and this is the publicity they get out of it. And Starfleet fleet deployments always seem a bit dodgy. Like I said, going right back to the motion picture, but this is just a whole new level. It's a whole new level. It is unimaginably incompetent. That this half-built, half-crewed, work-in-progress is the only ship in range of Earth. And thinking about it diegetically like that, yes, it makes no sense. In terms of shortcuts that you take to get the scenes that you want to have, I mean, it's still not inevitable, right? I mean, all the things that aren't on the Enterprise yet... That's just to serve a running gag through this first sequence of the movie. You know, all the not-till-Tuesday stuff, which, I mean, is funny enough. Yeah, the gag works. The gag works fine, but you can get to the same place narratively if that stuff just happens not to work with this particular anomaly. 
I mean, you're you're making up whatever this ribbon is as you go along. A lot of people watch this scene, and they see the ship that doesn't have a tractor beam, and doesn't have torpedoes, and doesn't have a medical staff, and has half a crew, and it's half built, and they assign the blame for all of this to Harriman, because he's the captain. And so they assign all this blame to him, that he's incompetent. Why would he not have all this stuff? Why would he not be prepared? I don't think you could blame Harriman. You blame the admiral in charge over him. You blame the command structure. You blame whoever set up this publicity stunt. You blame whoever went to him and said, Look, we want you to take the ship, fly out to the Oort Cloud, and then come back to Earth. About three hours on impulse engines, and you'll have reporters there, and you'll have this old guy Kirk there, and don't do anything else. Oh, by the way, you're the only ship in range of Earth. It's easy to see him as a buffoon when he's more overwhelmed by circumstance. He's entirely overwhelmed by circumstance. Even Kirk calls out in the scene. Even Kirk turns to him in shock and says, you left space dock without a tractor beam? And even even in that statement, he's implicitly blaming Harriman for leaving space dock without this yeah. stuff and not blaming the admirals who ordered him to leave space dock without this stuff. Yeah, you left space dock without a tractor beam instead of they sent you out of space dock without a tractor beam. James Kirk, who's been a captain for 40 years who's been an admiral, who went through that experience in Star Trek III where he basically stopped giving a fuck, James Kirk would have gone to the admiralty and said, what the fuck do you mean leave space dock without a tractor beam? Go fuck yourselves, install a tractor beam, and then I'll leave space dock. John Harriman, first time captain, young kid, first command, oh, he's commanding the Enterprise, not much to live up to there. Totally overwhelmed, trying to do his best, trying to make a good impression, trying not to fuck up. Trying to make a good impression on his boyhood hero. Yeah. I mean, that's what... Also I... trying to make a good impression on the command structure. It said, you, we choose you to be the next captain of the next Enterprise. Yeah, but that's what... He's I... not going to say, no, install the tractor beam and then I'll leave Space Talk. He's going to say, sir, yes, sir. Yeah, but that's what I mean by overwhelmed by circumstance. You know, he's not only getting his first command and all this stuff, but... He's also got these, you know, mythic figures sitting right there. And so whenever anything goes wrong, he kind of looks over at Kirk to, for a little bit of reassurance or a little bit of advice or something. Well, but Kirk's line, you left space dock without a tractor beam, it, it, it implicitly blames Harriman. And from a perspective, you can blame Harriman because the captain is responsible for his ship. If the captain felt it's not safe to take the ship out of space dock without a tractor beam, he should have stood up and said, no, I'm not taking my ship out of space dock without a tractor beam. That's what Captain James Kirk would have done. Because he's been a captain for 40 years, and he's kind of a hothead, and he doesn't give a shit anymore. James Kirk would have said, no, Admiral, I'm not going anywhere until I have a tractor beam. John Harriman is not in a position to do that. He doesn't have that kind of cachet. He doesn't have that kind of experience behind him. He doesn't have that kind of swag with the brass. He doesn't have that kind of Teflon coating that Kirk wound up with eventually. John Harriman doesn't have the luxury of saying, No, I'm not going to do that, Admiral. Meanwhile, Kirk is kind of groping the captain's chair whenever he gets a chance. Yeah, that's not exactly subtle. No. Although, I do have a great deal of respect for Kirk in this scene. Because you could see how much he wants to be in that chair. You could see it's, it's, it's tangible. How much he wants to be in that chair, giving commands. As soon as Harriman says, do you have any suggestions? Kirk starts strutting around the bridge giving commands. 
You know, he's, he's, he's ordering scans, he's ordering torpedoes, prepare to fire on my command, he says. Yeah. But when Harriman says, I'll go reprogram the deflector dish, you take command of the bridge, Kirk stops him and says, no, don't do that. You're the captain, you belong in that seat on this bridge, not me. I think that speaks very well of Kirk's character, that he, he does that. You can see it's practically visible his desire to sit in that chair and command a starship. But he says, no, you're the captain of this ship. You sit in that chair. You stay on this bridge. You are in command. Right. It's kind of the culmination of a lot of growth that we've gotten from him since the first movie where he completely bigfooted the acting captain. Yeah. It is sort of an interesting parallel to what he does to Captain Decker in Star Trek 1 where he uses the situation to take the ship out from under him. Whereas this captain's practically handing him command, and he says, no, I'm not going to undermine you. You're the captain. That's the captain's chair. You belong in that chair. Sit down. Take command. You need somebody to go reprogram the deflector dish. I'll go do it. In this movie, I made this criticism in Star Trek VI when they had the chief medical officer reprogramming the targeting sensor on the photon torpedo. In this movie, it actually is plausible that they, don't have, they do not have a science staff or an engineering staff or any technicians aboard who could reprogram the deflector dish. Because <laughs> they don't have any fucking else thing on this ship either. They don't have a medical staff, so maybe they don't have an engineering staff or a science staff or anybody other than retired Captain James T. Kirk to go and reprogram the deflector dish. I mean, someone's got to be running the warp drive, but otherwise, I suppose. Well, yeah, but if they're running the warp drive, maybe they only have just enough people to run the warp drive. Maybe they don't even have enough people to run the warp drive, because they weren't supposed to go to warp. They're supposed to go out to Pluto and back again. Yeah. So, like, maybe they're overtaxing the engineering staff just by running the warp drive, and they don't have a single person to spare to go reprogram a deflector dish. It's actually plausible this time. Although, Scotty running the sensors and Chekhov bringing people down to sickbay to treat the refugees, again, are kind of blatant artifacts that those aren't the characters that are supposed to be there. Yeah, and of course, Scotty running the sensors and coming up with technobabble solutions is another one of those moments where it's just completely obvious that this is next-gen dialogue being laid over a scene with original series characters, with original series actors, with the original series movies aesthetic. You know, with the Star Trek II maroon uniforms, with the blue and green command consoles, and... All of those things that we see for the last time in chronology here kind of transitioning in a way toward next-gen because they're all on the touch screens, like you mentioned with the Excelsior last time. They actually have techs in the like maroon and cream jumpsuits from Wrath of Khan, so I was wrong when I said Star Trek VI was the last time we were going to see that because they have those people on the bridge in this movie too. Right, but to have... All of those things going on aesthetically while Scotty is running the sensors talking about gravimetric fields and Captain Harriman is spinning off technobabble solutions to try to vent the warp drive plasma and everything is just kind of tone deaf. I love that. Not the Scotty part. I love Harriman and his proposed solutions to get the ships out of the Nexus. It is the one moment when he kind of seems in charge. I love that contrast though. Because this is a new era. This, mm. is, this is like 30 or 40 years after Kirk took command before the original series. This is a new class of ship that's all brightly lit. It's all got touchscreens. This is a whole new era. 
Kirk is, he's not entirely obsolete, but he is, he's a relic at this point. I love that Harriman is coming up with all these complicated solutions. Can you form a warp shell? Can you, can you vet the drive plasma? He's coming up with all these ideas of what can we do to affect this ribbon. And he asks Kirk for advice, and Kirk just says, we'll just barge right in there and transport him away. And Harriman's like, but, but, but we're going to get trapped, you know? And Kirk's like, one problem at a time. Right now they're in danger, rescue them. Then when we're in danger, work on rescuing us. But right now, they're the priority. Right. It's just an entirely different mindset from Harriman trying to, like, come up with, like, science his way out of it, while Kirk is just sort of blunt forcing his way into it. I love that contrast between the two command styles. That is the difference in, in the approaches, sometimes, that you would think would be there between original series and next-gen, where original series was always more about, you know, let's beam down and get into it, rather than doing technobabble solutions and walking around the problem. is a very crude way of describing both, but there is that distinction. Yeah. I just really love that moment where Kirk is, like, literally just... Just fly in there and transport him away. And Harriman's like, but then we're going to be in danger and we're going to be trapped. And Kirk's like, that's what you do. That's why you're on this ship. They're in danger. You can help them. If you get put in danger because of that, that's why you're in Starfleet. If you don't want to do that, go run a farm. And then just to underline the generational distinctions there, not only in age between Captain Harriman and, and the original crew, but there is literally Demora Sulu, literally the next generation after the original crew. Yeah. I kind of love that touch. Although I read somewhere that they... I don't know how true this is, but I, I read somewhere that George Takei said that they tried to get him to be in the movie and they wanted him to be the helmsman. That sounds, at the same time, like something that makes no sense and something they would have done. <laughs> See, I was never quite sure how much of that to believe because George Takei can be very bitter... Or at the time, he could be very bitter about his experience with Star Trek. He was campaigning for a long time to get a Captain Sulu television series. And so he was very bitter that that never panned out. And so this is the sort of thing that would be just more fodder for his axe to grind about the whole thing. So I was never quite sure how much of it to believe, but I could sort of see that. Sulu, out of all of the original series crew, was always the most concerned about his character's career. Like, he was always pushing for his character to get a command of his own. He wanted to get a Captain Sulu TV series to feature Sulu as the captain. And in this supposed instance, he took great offense that Sulu, who was a captain in the last movie, was now going to be just a helmsman. Yeah. We mentioned in an earlier episode that we don't really know what any of these people's lives are away from the ship. And Damora Sulu is sort of the embodiment of that. Before this movie, we didn't know Sulu had a family, had a daughter. Does he have a wife? We don't even know that. All we know is that he's got this daughter. He could have a wife. He could have a husband. He could have three wives. He could have an ex-wife. He could have a fling that he had 20 years ago. We don't know. Maybe Chekhov has something similar. Maybe Uhura has something similar. We don't know. And Demora Sulu is sort of the example of that. Like, look what we didn't know about Sulu. Who knows what we didn't know about Chekhov or Hura or Scotty or McCoy. Yeah, you can always make the assumption that these people have full lives. It's just that we see very little of it. And all we see is them serving on the ship. Yeah. So, they answer this distress call from the Elorian ships, which gives us another link to the next-gen era later in the movie. 
because we get Guinan on the ship, who was, of course, a very popular character, and obviously, even here, her notable fashion sense is so much more advanced even from others among her people. Guinan's timeline is really interesting. Because we know in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, she's in San Francisco on Earth. Yeah. And then apparently in the 2290s, she was back in her home planet and is a refugee from the Borg. Right. Well, I'm not sure that that's supposed to stand up to a whole lot of scrutiny, but... <laughs> you know, that, that just kind of is what it is. One of the things that I'm going to want to come back to as sort of a theme of this movie is that in terms of mythology, Next Generation is kind of rising to a place of prominence by taking over the movie franchise. And there are sacrifices that are made to accomplish that. And the first one is here when they're trying to escape on the Enterprise B from this Nexus and a random energy bolt lashes out and hits exactly where Kirk is. And it's almost like the story element of the Nexus is lashing out and demanding that this thing be taken. This next generation of Captain Harriman and Damora Sulu and all them must go on without their mythological figures. Or with their mythological figures only in memory. They are now only mythology. Or Kirk is, rather. Well, in reality, it's the Paramount Studio executives who are demanding the sacrifice. Because they're the ones that came up with the bright idea that we can't make next generation movies unless we kill Kirk. Yes, of course. But I think that still has that interesting sort of mythological implication. And there are further sacrifices that are going to be made on all sides during this movie that... We'll come back to that theme. Now, to transition out of the original series era into the Next Generation era, we go, of course, to the sea, where the entire Next Gen crew is gathered on a sailboat on the holodeck, which might at first seem rather arbitrary, but it does make a really big distinction, right? That this shift in setting is taking place by changing the entire aesthetic of what we've been seeing up to now. We're not going from one spaceship to another spaceship. We're going from one spaceship to the sailboat. It is, of course, because we're in the movies now, the best budget that a holodeck scene has ever had. <laughs> That's true. It's the first holodeck adventure that doesn't take place on the Paramount backlot. Right. And thank goodness, I mean, we start this section of the movie on the holodeck, and it's not a holodeck malfunction episode. Although, are you sure the holodeck's not malfunctioning? Because there must be some reason why all the holographically generated crew members on this ship are dressed up like valet parking attendants. Well, the holodeck always presents kind of a theme park version of history, right? And in the theme park version of history, sailors dressed up like valet parking attendants? In the theme park version of history, timelines tend to get a little muddled. You know, you're not going to get historically accurate costumes on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Now, we've been talking about studio mentalities. And one of the huge things that you hear about studios hammering again and again and again is that each installment of a franchise is going to be somebody's first. And so there has to be something to introduce people to all these characters. I mean, you can't assume that everyone seeing this movie has watched seven years of The Next Generation. But if someone seeing this movie hasn't watched Seven Years of the Next Generation, or a significant swath of it, how does this work as an introduction for these people? 
Well, I guess they introduce Worf, and they um, introduce Data not understanding humor, although I think he understood it rather well. Oh yeah, totally. Among every other thing else that happens in this movie, that is the most nonsensical thing that happens in this movie, is when Data pushes Crusher overboard and everyone else doesn't find it funny. Yeah, that's another one of those things that just has to happen because the script says it has to happen. I just don't understand how they, you know, insert in the script, Data does something that's not funny that he thinks is funny, and what they wind up making him do is the funniest thing in the movie. Yeah, you almost want everyone to start pushing everyone else into the water, right? Like the end of Star Trek Four, where they do exactly that. Yes. Nobody, he, nobody tells Jillian Taylor, you don't understand the concept of humor. Even Spock thought that was funny. Yeah. Also, going along with the theme park version of history that we get on the holodeck is the sort of technological clash when you have all these people who have a 24th century state-of-the-art spaceship who also know what a stuncil is and use a sort of telescope. Well, there's two main clashes. The large one is when Captain Picard calls for the Arch so that he can read his subspace communique. And this starship doorway appears in the middle of the deck of the sailboat. And then when Geordi has like a spyglass and holds it up to his visor. I don't even know how that works. In fact, I don't think it does. I think those two pieces of technology are fundamentally incompatible. And yet... I don't know, that whole scene is sort of amusing. I mean, the part with Crusher and Data is funny. Other than that, it never really grabbed me. It doesn't really serve any particular purpose. It's just sort of there, you know? Yeah, it does kind of try to serve a few different purposes. I mean, the only real important character bit in this scene, other than the one with Data that's completely contrasensical, the only real bit of character in this scene is when Riker leans over to Picard and says, you know, Worf will never make the jump, no one ever has, implying that Picard has never been part of this before, because before he joined the card game in All Good Things, he held himself apart from the crew. But now he's joining them in shit like this. That's a take on it I don't think I'd heard before. It just also seemed to me that this is the big budget, although, you know, big budget compared to the TV show, movie version of acknowledging someone's promotion as opposed to the scene in Lower Decks where an ensign gets promoted and someone pins the pip on his collar and that's it. Everyone says congratulations and they have a drink. Maybe the Lower Decks people have to organize their own holodeck celebrations. If the Lower Decks people can even get holodeck time, it's always being taken up by, you know, people going on sailboats or doing Sherlock Holmes stories or whatever. Especially if Reg Barkley is still part of a crew. Yeah, or maybe Reg Barkley is just living in the one. <laughs> that sailboat scene also has a conversation between Picard and Riker that does seem a lot like something that would happen on the TV show. Which helps, because we have the writers from the TV show, where Picard is giving this sort of romanticized version of sea life. You know, you're away from everything, and it's just you and the sea. And Riker kind of undercuts that with, you know, the brutal discipline, bad food, no women. You know, kind of showing that nostalgia is fine, but it has limited uses. Yeah, Picard is much more the one to wax poetic about the past than Riker. Right. 
But of course, the major point of the sailboat scene is the bit with Data and Dr. Crusher that gets him onto the idea that he really does need emotions now, which can be integrated with some of the other themes of the movie. The theme of aging does carry with it a sense of development. That's the sort of positive spin on aging, right? That you're growing and maturing, and Data feels that his growth has reached an impasse. And so, because he is a technological being, he has to use this technological solution to reach the next stage of his development. So, you can integrate it that way, but as with a couple other things, it also kind of feels tacked on, right? To an extent. It's also one of the worst effects since, like, the Genesis planet in Star Trek Three. Maybe worse. Has there ever been an effect in a Star Trek movie worse than Data's plastic head when they're inserting the chip? Where it just looks really plastic and fake, and you can see around his entire head where the makeup is molded over the lip of this giant plastic bowl they've put over his head? It's just so painfully bad. See, that had never stood out to me that much. Really? Not as much as you're saying, That no. stood out to me in 1994. Okay, I was wondering if that was, you know, something that happens because we watch everything in HD now. It stood out to me when I watched it in a movie theater. The Hyatt Theater in Stratford Square. Wow, there's a callback. <laughs> you know, podcast people, if anyone remembers the uh, Hyatt Theater in Stratford, Connecticut, give us a ring. That's the theater where we saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 and 3. Oh, oh, such memories. <laughs> and it's kind of strange because they did effects with Data's head many times in the TV show. Yeah, and those were time. great. And every one of those looked a thousand percent better than this. Yeah, so I, I, I don't quite get what happened there, but yeah. Every time they did it on the TV show, it was like one little panel that opened up on one back corner of his head or one little panel over on this side. For this one, the whole top of his head comes off. And it's not even metal. It's a fake plastic thing. And it's awful. One thing that makes this feel a little tacked on to me is that it feels like now that they're in the movies, they figure we can do big things to the characters now. In a TV show, there's a strong incentive to hit the reset button and have everything the way it is in the basic premise of the series because everyone else in the writer's room is writing their episodes and they're writing the characters the way that they've known them for the last several years. And so there's a disincentive to do huge, huge things with characters. But in the movies, we're doing one movie every couple years or so, and so you can do those things. Also, in All Good Things, the next-gen finale, Data had emotions and used contractions and all of those sorts of things in the hypothetical anti-time future in that episode. And it kind of feels like now that they're in the next-gen movies, the idea is we can do those things that we showed in the future now. Yeah, they do sort of rush to do as many of them as possible immediately, though. Yeah, we'll see that in the next movie as well, in another big example. But having that be the journey for Data in this movie, 
very much feels like, one, we have a chance to do something, and two, we're going to have that be the case in the future, I guess, because I just remembered that, of course, they wrote all good things after they wrote this movie. <laughs> and so that kind of makes my point a little backwards. <laughs> So they wrote this movie where Data got his emotions and then wrote the anti-time future where he has his emotions. And now, of course, because Data has emotions, Brent Spiner can be as obnoxious as he wants to be. Oh, good lord. Most of it's okay. Most of it's pretty funny. I don't want to disrespect Brent Spiner as an actor at all. He's certainly a fine actor and, and you know, one of, the, one of the finest from the show. But he does enjoy hamming it up a bit much. He loves hamming it up a lot. Most of it works, though. I don't think it really goes too far. I mean, when it does go too far, it goes too far on purpose. And when it goes too far, it's to show that Data's going too far, not just because Brent Spiner's going too far. There are a few points where it really works. There are a few points where I think it's kind of overdone. Well, I think it makes enough sense. I mean... When you think logically, what's going to happen as soon as Data gets emotions? He's going to go through every single memory he has, which he has recorded perfectly because he's a computer, and he's going to go through them all and reevaluate them now that he can feel emotions. And so he's going to spend a quite a bit of time laughing at every single joke he's ever heard. Yes. Which could take a while. Yes. And which doesn't amuse Jordy very much. No, Jordy is unamused. Jordy already laughed at all these jokes when they happened. I'm picturing that a little bit like Picard's scene after he mind-melded with Sarek and he's feeling all of Sarek's emotions. You know, I'm, I'm imagining Data going through every joke he's ever heard and when his daughter died and all the times he got betrayed by his brother <laughs> and when he failed in his relationship with his girlfriend... And all of the things that happened in the series that would provoke an emotional response. When he found his decapitated head in San Francisco. You know, feeling the, the joy and the love and the shame and the terror of everything that's happened to him. That's an interesting question, though. Does he feel all of that? Like, when he goes through the memory of finding his severed head underneath San Francisco. Does that memory of that event include some recording of an emotion he would have felt at that moment that he can now experience? Or does he just look back on that and remember it and feel an emotion related to the memory? I think it would probably have to be an emotion related to the memory. It's also possible that he would be anhedonic with regards to all past events, but he would have full emotional reactions to present and future events. Well, he obviously has full emotional reaction to present and future, but I right. mean... When he remembers back to, like, his relationship with Jenna DeSora, is he going to, like, experience the highs and lows of trying to make that relationship work and experience the heartbreak of failing? Or is he just going to look back at that memory and go, oh, that's too bad. I could have treated her better if I had this emotion shit back then. Oh, well. I think on a functional level, there may not be much difference because Data ought to be able to process those things rather quickly. Although, well, I think there's a big difference if you remember, you know, if you find your own severed head, you're going to experience some fucking fear or terror even about how the fuck did my head get severed and wind up buried under San Francisco? 
Whereas if he's just looking back on it and he completely understands what happened and remembers the end of that story and how it all worked out pretty well, he's just going to go, huh, that was interesting. Maybe that's why he goes on to develop some rather severe anxiety over the course of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the movie clearly shows that Data, now that he has emotions, he's emotionally a child. Because the first thing he does is laughs at every single joke he's ever heard. Yes. And then he experiences fear for the first time. Which sort of lends credence to my theory that he's not actually experiencing the emotions he would have experienced during his previous experiences. Because Soren shows up with that little handheld photon launch or whatever the fuck that thing is. Pretty cool. I want to launch little green balls that fire off at people. Sure. But he experiences fear for the first time right there and he cannot fucking handle it. He, He cannot handle He is not equipped to handle this. And then afterwards, he feels incredibly guilty because, for the first time, he was not able to do something he wanted to do because of his fear. Right. Now that Data has emotions, he has known fear, and now he knows shame. And he feels that shame and guilt equally as cripplingly as he felt the fear. He can't handle the guilt either. Not until Picard browbeats him into looking at a sensor reading. Yeah, that scene is rather interesting because Picard, of course, to kind of parallel Data, and that's something we'll examine in in these next-gen movies as well, Picard and Data, because Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner had such large influences over the course of these movies, Picard and Data are the characters who get the emotional journeys in them. Yeah. And so Picard, of course, has his own overwhelming emotions. We mentioned aging and nostalgia and regret with the original series crew, and those are very much things that Picard is feeling as well. And so, in that scene, in the stellar cartography room, the big new set for the movie, which is awesome. It was awesome in the theater. It is less awesome on a television. I think it's still pretty cool. It's better on a 60-inch HD screen than it was on a 27-inch CRT pan and scan, but it's still nothing like what it was in the movie theater. That was fucking incredible in the movie theater. Yes, absolutely. It's sort of a totally immersive, three-dimensional planetarium. But in that scene between Picard and Data, they're both dealing with their respective emotional overloads, and... Picard starts off as the good cop because, of course, throughout the TV show, he always had sage advice to offer Data. Yeah, he's always been sort of a mentor, almost a father figure for Data in his journey trying to understand humanity. Absolutely. So he starts off trying to counsel him in a way and trying to reassure him that emotions can be difficult to deal with, but you can deal with them and we work through them and this is part of being human. And Data isn't really having any of it. Well, Data feels like the emotions are the reason why Geordi was captured. Right. And because he's feeling shame over the perception that he contributed to his friend being captured, he feels shame for having put in the emotion chip. And like all of these cycles of self-loathing, these things are cyclical. They are self-supporting. They're self-reinforcing. Yes, that is the phrase that I have been groping for for some time. (laughs) And so Picard kind of turns from good cop to bad cop and basically shuts Data down 
which, on the one hand, telling Data to buck up and accept his role with his new emotions gets him to stop having the breakdown he's having right in that moment, or at least to stop giving voice to it. Mm. On the other hand, Picard, as the captain of the ship, has just completely shouted down the concerns of a crew member dealing with extreme anxiety and self-loathing. Yes. Well, you can argue, what is Picard's duty in that moment? Is Picard's duty to tend to the emotional swings that Data is experiencing? Or is his duty to ensure that his junior officer performs his duty? Because they're not just pussyfooting around investigating, is this nebula more hydrogen than helium, or is it more helium than hydrogen? They're trying to stop a madman who destroys stars. And right now, he needs his science officer. Right, that's sort of the bifurcated responsibilities of Picard's character. I'm not sure they're all that bifurcated. I think in that moment, in that instance, he makes the right choice. Because he has a higher duty. They all have a higher duty. They are not just people on a ship going around. They are officers in a military, or at least pseudo-military. They have a duty to protect innocence. They have a duty to stop this madman who's going around blowing up stars. It's just like when Kirk told Harriman, your job as Starfleet is to help those people. Go in there and beam them out. If you get put in danger because of that, we'll deal with that danger. But your duty is to them. Go save them. And that's essentially the same modus operandi that Picard is operating under at that point. He would like to help Data through his emotional crisis. I'm sure he hopes Data pulls through his emotional crisis and gets himself put together. But at the moment, he has a duty to the people on planets orbiting the stars that this madman is going to blow up. And that's the higher duty. He has reached something higher, you're saying. He's a Starfleet officer, and Data is a Starfleet officer, and they both have a duty to perform. And Picard's job as the captain is to get Data to perform his duty. If possible, I'm sure he'd like to mentor him through this emotional crisis, but at the moment he doesn't have that luxury. His top priority is to get Data to do his job so they can stop this madman from blowing up any more stars. And of course, these are duties that Picard has to deal with while going through his own grief. Yeah, he's going through his own emotional crisis, but he... Doesn't deal with it well at first. He just has Riker take over everything and snaps at him a couple of times. But now he's pulled himself together and he's dealing with this crisis and putting his own emotional crisis aside to deal with this issue. And if he has to browbeat Data to get him to do the same thing, then that's what he's going to do. Well, that's a couple different methods of kind of pulling it together as well. Because Data pulls himself together when Picard snaps at him and turns from father figure, mentor, to I'm your captain and these are your orders. While Picard pulls himself together after going through this big emotional scene that he has with Counselor Troy, kind of bearing himself a little. Yeah, he does get to have that sort of... He has that time to deal with it a little bit. And then he also has that session with Counselor Troy before the crisis happens, and he sort of pulls himself together to deal with the crisis. Mm. And on another level, Patrick Stewart has a very big, very emotional, weepy scene to play. Where, of course, as well, now that we're in the movies and we can make big changes to characters, they kind of get rid of most of Picard's family off-screen. You know, his brother and his son are said to have burned to death on Earth, 
which I imagine must be pretty rare. And also, no mention is made of his sister-in-law, Marie Picard. I wonder how she's doing. Well, I'm assuming she's the one that sent that message you received on the holodeck. Uh, maybe. Remember how your brother didn't want any of that damn technology around here? Maybe we should have put in some thought into fire suppression. Well, maybe that's how this event that must be pretty rare on Earth happens to uh, Robert and Rene Picard. I'm sure the vineyard's alright, though. We haven't mentioned at all much the main theme of this movie. And we've sort of skirted around it a couple of times now, but this whole movie is focused on the choices that you make in life and how that affects the legacy you leave behind. That's sort of played out in many ways. It's played out with Kirk and Scotty and Chekhov who actually go on the next Enterprise and see their legacy and see the people that are sort of taking over from them. It's expressed with Picard, where he talks about how he felt good knowing that the family line would continue, even though he was approaching the end of his life. And now the family line won't continue. And that's affecting Picard's outlook on what legacy is he leaving behind when there's no more Picards to carry on that legacy. It's expressed with Soren, who doesn't want to leave anything behind. He wants to go and live forever in this fantasy nexus land. It's expressed with several of the characters in various ways of how do they handle their approaching mortality and how do their choices affect what they leave behind as their legacy. And that's essentially the decision that Kirk has to make in the Nexus later with Picard. And it plays out with various characters throughout the movie of people sort of meditating on their legacy that they leave behind and focusing on how do these various people handle their own approaching mortality. Right, it's a very melancholy sort of theme to have in this movie, and I kind of appreciate that that's what the movie's about. It's a weird sort of theme to have for the first of what they obviously hoped would be many Next Generation movies, but it was sort of forced on them because some studio executive said, well, Kirk has to die in the film. So what else are you going to focus on, really? Right, well, I think the decision-making might have been a little more complicated than that, but maybe not much. If your orders from on high are have Kirk in the movie, have him pass the torch to Picard, and then have him die so that Picard can have the torch passed to him, and then you come up with a movie that's about mortality and legacies and how you accept your mortality and how your decisions shape your legacy, that's not exactly a large leap for me to be there. Except there's a different story you could tell with that basic order, you know? You could have Kirk go out in a hail of phaser fire in a big damn hero death. You could have him in a situation like the Doomsday Machine, except he can't get off the ship and he dies. You know, you could have him make some bombastic sacrifice. But instead, the death that they give him is small and personal and melancholy. There was never going to be a good way to kill Kirk. That's true. Their original idea of how to kill Kirk was no good. The reshoots they did, the way to kill Kirk was no good. The best death Kirk had in the movie was if he had actually died on the Enterprise B. This is James T. Kirk. He's been around for 27, 28 years at this point. He's been on TV. He's been in six movies. He's in a seventh movie. There was no good way to kill James T. Kirk. As soon as somebody said, have Kirk die in the movie, there was no way that was going to work. There was no way what they were going to come up with would be a satisfactory way for James Kirk to die. Well, 
we are going to get into that a little more. We are going to get into the themes of this movie, the events in this movie, the symbolism of a lot of these things in some more detail after this ad break when we come back and continue our discussion of Star Trek Generations. We will see you then. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nation's justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes and place to be nation.com you can check out scott criscolo and me on the mothership the place to be podcast with our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews ptbn also covers current day wrestling with main event mission indie possible and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on wwe nxt and ring of honor super shows and relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by ben morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We got sports covered too with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott, Dr. G, Cowboy, and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McClune Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, and if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceToBeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network.
And we are back. Glenn here with Scott, talking about Star Trek Generations, and I want to move into the Nexus. Everyone does, apparently. Yeah, exa exactly. What do you think your Nexus would be? If you could wrap yourself up in joy like a blanket. Yeah, I don't have a better answer either. <laughs> so... The Nexus, as it's explained to us in this scene between Picard and Guinan in Guinan's candle-filled quarters, there are a couple different ways to approach it. There are a couple different metaphors. It's kind of like a Star Trek sort of transcendence, where it's taking you to this kind of heavenly plane of existence or something, but the mechanism for that is a random spatial anomaly. So it's not actually like you're achieving some spiritual understanding to attain this higher plane of existence. You're just being sucked there by an energy ribbon. It's almost like the idealization of a heaven idea, I suppose. I've never really been into the whole heaven thing, but alright. With the never-ending cyclical quality of a purgatory. With no sort of teleology behind it. Like, there's nobody guiding your Nexus experience except you, I suppose. There, there isn't any sort of governing body. But also, you don't have to spend a lifetime doing good works to achieve heaven. All you have to do is get in the way of this ribbon. Yeah, which sometimes involves very bad works. <laughs> See, I kind of saw it when Guinan was explaining it. She said a lot of, like, buzzwords, and she really harped on... If you're in the Nexus, you won't care about your duty. You won't care about your crewmates. She says Soren doesn't care about weapons or power. All you care about is staying in the Nexus. And that description makes it sound a lot like a drug addiction allegory. Where you don't care about your duty. You don't care about your friends. You don't care about accomplishments. All you care about is your next fix. Right, and that seems to be carried through a little bit in Malcolm McDowell's performance, where this isn't a guy with any sort of joy in his life. You know, he admires the, some technology during the movie, but he, he doesn't seem like a guy who does a lot for entertainment. Well, because he's not trying to entertain himself, all he wants to do is get back to the Nexus. That allegory is definitely there. But I attached a little more to the symbolism that Guinan used to describe it. The blanket of joy that you wrap yourself up in. And there's dual symbolism there. Because there's the idea of a blanket as something that provides comfort and warmth and security. But there's also the sort of creepy picture of someone who's hanging on to a security blanket way too long. And that kind of gets to an idea that's run through Star Trek at various points, especially in the original series, if I recall, where if something is just providing you with happiness and just providing you with a completely stable, secure environment, there's probably a dark undercurrent there and Captain Kirk is probably going to blow it up. There isn't even necessarily a dark undercurrent there. The dark undercurrent is that this thing is simply providing you with happiness in a stable environment, and it's not challenging you or forcing you to grow at all. 
in that respect, Captain Kirk is kind of like the shadows from Babylon 5. I'm, th I'm thinking particularly of like the Apple or some other episodes where he meets like the planet's computer and talks it into destroying itself. Where it's not enough that these people are in a stable society where their needs are provided for and they live relatively happy lives. That's not enough. They have to be challenged. They have to work for their happiness. They have to advance their society and not just be stagnant. And that's eventually what Kirk decides about his own Nexus fantasy. That because he's not challenged, because there's no sense of danger or mortality, as Captain Picard emphasizes over and over again to Soren, you know, it's our mortality that defines us. Kirk decides that he can't just live in this environment where everything is provided for him and there are no stakes. Yeah, Viridian 4 is saved because Kirk is an adrenaline junkie. He, he jumps over the ravine and isn't scared shitless and decides, well, what's the point of this if I'm not scared shitless? It's an interesting contrast there because Picard is called back by his sense of duty and Kirk is called back because he likes to be scared by jumping over this ravine and doesn't feel scared and so decides the whole thing isn't worth it. Right, he entirely rejects his duty, actually. In a very similar way that he does at the beginning of Star Trek VI, actually. Because he is in his post-Star Trek three don't give a shit mode, he says to Picard, you know, I feel like I've done my bit, I'm done. Which he kind of says to Spock in Star Trek VI, where he says, you know, we're really near retirement, let someone else do this, let us, you know, like, go, go fishing or something. Fishing, something else with very few stakes. In Star Trek VI, he says, we've done our bit for king and country. In Generations, he says, I feel like the galaxy owes me one. Does it, though? That's well, it, that depends on your conception of the galaxy and existence, and is there an architect, and is there fate, and all sorts of thorny questions that Star Trek hasn't really gotten into since Star Trek V. Way back then, yeah. Yeah, that also kind of assumes a teleology that Star Trek doesn't provide, or doesn't feel fit to provide. But getting to the two Nexus fantasies that we do see, given the characters as we've known them for years before this movie, neither one makes a lot of sense. But if you only consider the needs of this one movie... It fits with the themes that are running through this movie in isolation. So there's that sort of contrast. It fits with the themes of this movie, and Picard's can be explained away as being influenced by his recent events and not necessarily his heart's greatest desire, but just what he has forefront in his mind now. Although it is still weird that his fantasy family life takes place in Victorian England. Yeah, his fantasy life is being in the Dickensian upper class at Christmas with a wife who looks suspiciously like Dr. Crusher, with children who have fighter plane toys that are very anachronistic, and a convenient lack of the servant class. I get that he's thinking about family and he has a family here, and that's one sort of idealized family scenario, but... The whole thing just seems very anachronistic. Well, it is. It's entirely anachronistic because they're all dressed like a... They're not even dressed like Victorian England. They're dressed like a theme park version of Victorian England. They're like on the Disney Victorian England ride. That's how all these kids are dressed. Also, Picard has like ten kids, 
Including his brother's kid, even though his brother isn't there, but the brother's kid is there. And the brother's kid is about ten years too young compared to the age he was when he appeared on Next Generation. Yeah, that's another thing. In his great fantasy family, Rene is there, but Robert is completely gone still. Yeah. You know, I thought they patched things up. So there's all sorts of weirdness. You can explain away his fantasy of having a family as because of recent events, that's forefront in his mind. But explaining why it's in a cartoon version of an anachronistic Victorian England, which is even more anachronistic for Picard than it is for us. Because it's only like 150 years ago for us. It's like 500 years ago for Picard. Right, well that's entirely a, you know, theme park version of history. Unless you want to say, like, fashions are cyclical and all of that ridiculously over-the-top Victorian shit is back in fashion in France, where Picard is from. <laughs> all of Picard's kids have English accents like him, even though he's supposedly from France. <laughs> well, there may be a dark future in store for France. So Picard's fantasy is, just, is weird from all of those perspectives. And yet it still makes more sense than Kirk's. Anyone who has ever consumed any small portion of Star Trek knows that Kirk's Nexus fantasy would be to be back on the Enterprise in command of a starship with Spock and McCoy with him going out and doing Starship Commander shit. There's nothing else that Kirk would want to do in his fantasy life other than command the ship again. Yeah, that's something that I'm pretty sure was an idea that was there originally, but because of, like, production difficulties, like, that would be difficult to film, and that would be difficult to, like, create again. Even if you were going to do the movie-era Enterprise rather than the Toast Enterprise, which might be... Do you think if they tried to do the Toast Enterprise, it would be kind of copying that scene with Scotty and Relics. I was going to say, they just built the Toast Enterprise for Relics. Yeah, but would that be, like, you know, repeating themselves a little soon? Still would have been accurate. And that scene could have worked just as well if Kirk's on the Enterprise, even if he can't get Nimoy and Kelly, even if it's Scotty and Chekhov that are on the bridge with him. It's still him in command with Scotty and Chekhov there and then a bunch of nobodies. And then Picard like walks onto the bridge out of nowhere and says, Hey, Captain Kirk, this isn't real. And Kirk's like, No, I'm in command. It's real. And then they have their whole like back and forth about is this real and should you leave the Nexus? And then, you know, Kirk can go into battle against a Klingon cruiser and not feel the adrenaline rush and realize all of this is fake. It, it would have worked just as well. And it would have been more accurate for Kirk's character. Kirk's fantasy is not to retire from Starfleet and marry a random woman named Antonia who we've never heard of before. That's not in character for the character we've known through any of these movies. But, like you said when we were talking about the Enterprise B sequence, this movie is assuming a lot more life has been lived by all of these characters. Yes, but Kirk is the main character. If he had more of a life, we would have seen it. True. I mean, it's not its not like Scotty, where he gets like one scene where he does one funny thing, and then that's his role in the movie. This is Kirk. He's the feature character. Besides, you have the line in Star Trek V, where they talk about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, talk about how men like us don't have families, which heavily implies they don't. 
Chekhov and Sulu and Horamite, but those three apparently don't. Also, the timeline is all fucked up. Because Kirk says that it's nine years ago when he told Antonio he was going back to Starfleet. Nine years before that scene would have put it, like, sometime between Star Trek V and VI. Which, it's kind of ridiculous to assume Kirk retired again between Star Trek V and VI. And then went back to Starfleet. Most fan conjectures place that scene between Star Trek I and II. And so it's more like 12 or 13 or 14 years ago, not nine years ago. Yeah, well, the timeline of the movies is a little fungible anyway. I think people forget that the movies don't take place relatively when they were seen. The timeline inside the box is not the same as the timeline outside the box. Not like comic books. Because right. 2, 3, 4, and 5 all take place within a year of each other. At most. Of course, even while both captains imagine themselves unencumbered of their Starfleet duties in one way or another, they're both still in their uniforms. Yeah, nobody in this movie is out of a uniform. The closest thing is Sorn, who's wearing whatever the hell he's wearing. But nobody in this movie is shown out of a uniform, which is the second movie in a row that happens. Yeah, so they both have that sort of subliminal connection back to Starfleet, back to their duty, back to the lives that we've seen them lead. Well, if you're talking about subliminal connections, in Picard's Nexus Fantasy, there's this Christmas ornament on the tree. That's like a glass ball ornament. And there's a pulsing light in the middle of the ornament that looks like a star being destroyed by Trilithium. Mm-hmm. Is that supposed to do that? Is that just some sci-fi future Christmas ornament that has a little pulsing light inside the glass ball? Or is that just a regular bog-standard 500-years-old Victorian glass ball ornament? And because Picard has this niggling sense of duty in the back of his mind, he's seeing the star being destroyed by Trilithium to try to remind himself, no, this isn't real, you have a duty. I think that's absolutely a subliminal connection on Picard's part. That because this whole scene is his fantasy, that that little niggling reminder that these are the stakes, this is your duty, this is what you have to go and do... So it's not like that's like a futuristic pulsing light ornament that happens to remind him of the star being destroyed. That's just a regular bog standard ornament that his mind is using to try to send him a subliminal message about the star being destroyed. Well, his mind creating the Nexus fantasy puts that in there because he can't dismiss those stakes from his mind. And also, given all of the weight that Guinan puts on the Nexus as a temptation and as the addiction metaphor you, you mentioned, something that will be so purely joyful, which might be, you know, a metaphorical way of saying, you know, this is going to pump all sorts of neurotransmitters through your brain. This is going to be great in just the way that recreational drugs do. Given all the weight she puts on it as this thing that is absolutely tempting, as in tempting in an absolute way, does it weaken it at all that Picard only seems to consider it for, like, a minute? I mean, I realize that's how the movie has to go, right? Yeah. Our heroes have to resist temptation as a matter of course because that's what our heroes do. And so Picard has to be kind of like Tom Bombadil, where he gets this thing that is so insidious and tempting and has to dismiss it immediately because, you know, we got time here. We got to get back to Viridian 3. And if he's going to reject it, he's going to reject it immediately, not after 20 years of indulgence. 
You mean it's not going to be like the inner light where he does see his kids grow up and see his grandkids and then it turns out, oh, this isn't real, I gotta go? Well, that was an outside influence telling Picard, oh, this isn't real, you have to go. Right. That wasn't Picard himself. Picard himself gradually came to accept it and stopped trying to find his way out and accepted his family role. That's what would happen if you stay in the Nexus any particular length of time. If he's going to reject it, as the story demands our heroes must, it's going to happen fairly quickly. Have we covered James T. Kirk existentialist? No, let's do that. Because I think this every time I hear that line now, because um, Sarah Vowell tells a story about Dallas Cowboys coach Tom Landry. And how when she was growing up, she saw like a pamphlet or a booklet or something from church where Tom Landry was advocating for evangelical Christianity in this booklet that was being distributed by her church. And he told his own story of coming to accept Jesus and being born again. And he told his story saying something like, you know, I was the coach of the Cowboys and I had all these accomplishments. I won Super Bowls, I had championships, I had fame, I had glory. But still, something was missing until I accepted my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into my heart. And Sarah Vowell tells this story that she's reading this booklet as a young girl and she gets to the part where he says something is missing and then stops and doesn't go on to the part about accepting Jesus. She just stops when Coach Landry says... Something was missing, and she just got hung up on that, and so she cites Coach Tom Landry and this Evangelical Christianity booklet as introducing her to existentialism. And I think about that every time I watch Star Trek Generations now, because Kirk is in the kitchen, he's cooking up his Katarian eggs, he's got the dill weed that he makes Picard get him, Picard's his sous chef now, and he just stops in the middle of everything, because he, he just sticks his finger in the ear and he goes, Something is missing. And then the toast pops up out of the toaster, and he goes, yeah, that's what was missing. But every time he says that, something is missing, and there's that pause, and I'm like, there he is, James T. Kirk, existentialist. <laughs> this is how my mind works. Well, of course, James T. Kirk, existentialist, is what got him to get out of the Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, something was missing. Even before the inevitable team-up, during Picard's Nexus fantasy, he asks this Echo of Guinan to come back with him. In part because she's the only one there who knows what's going on, sort of. Although, I mean, are there Echoes of everyone from the saucer section that crashed on the planet in the Nexus? Well, no, because they never went into the Nexus. The Nexus only consumed, like, half the planet? Or only the place where Soren and Picard were? Well, partly, yes, but also because Picard went back in time and changed time, so those people never went into the Nexus. Yeah, but I mean, Picard still did. Yeah. So, he asks Guinan to go back with him, and that's something that in discussions of this movie is often scoffed at. Because what would eventually happen, of course, is he got Kirk to go back with him, and they have a big bout of fisticuffsmanship with Soren because... It's an original series solution to a next generation problem. But I actually think that Picard asking Guinan to go back is pretty savvy, because Guinan, as the only other Elorian available, and as a person who knows exactly what Soren has gone through and exactly what he's feeling, she has reached her state of zen, sort of, following being pulled away from the Nexus, while Soren hasn't. So, she has the best chance of anyone at talking him down. You know, the next generation solution to all this. 
Also, she's the only person he has access to who isn't a figment of his fantasy. He doesn't exactly have the widest array of choices here. If he doesn't ask Guinan, who else is he going to ask? His imaginary nephew? His imaginary wife? Well, you think Nexus fantasy people can't leave the Nexus? It's like the holodeck? <laughs> you know, if he conjured uh, Dr. Moriarty, he couldn't bring him out with him? I mean, as far as Picard knows, he has the ability to contact one other non-figment of imagination being, and that's Guinan, and so he asks her to help him. Also, he knows Guinan. He trusts Guinan. I don't see why anyone would think that's a bad choice. Well, I think the general line on that is is just trying to imagine Guinan in the big slam-bag action scene. Don't underestimate Guinan. Hey, you know what? She can pull out a phaser rifle out of, out of anywhere. She won a stare-down with Q, remember? Yes. Don't underestimate Guinan. Also, is Guinan the first African-American woman since... Star Trek the motion picture to have natural hair? Oh, she's gotta be. But instead, Guinan can't come back, and we have the big generational meetup that the whole movie is built around, because Kirk can't have it all. You know, people talk about having a career and a family, and sometimes you really can't have it all, and Kirk can't manage. I think it's really important to consider the influence that Kirk has on Picard in this scene. Because Kirk gives a fairly extensive speech about the importance of being a starship captain. And I'm not sure that's something that Picard had ever understood in those terms before. Because Picard has always been sort of the diplomat. Picard has been the explorer. Not the, like, dashing, daring-do commander. Picard stays on the ship while he sends other people down to the surface to figure shit out. Picard has never been a captain in that mold that Kirk thinks of when he thinks of a captain. And so when Kirk starts explaining to him, don't let them put you anywhere other than the center seat on the bridge of that ship. Because while you're there, you can do anything. You're not stuck in an office in San Francisco. You're not stuck in an office on a starbase. You can go anywhere and do anything and you are in command and you can decide what needs to be done and you can make it get done. And you can't do that from anywhere else. You can't do that as an ambassador. You can't do that as an admiral. And I'm not certain that Picard ever understood the position in those terms before. And this is sort of a post-Star Trek three Kirk interpretation of it. That well, you're the captain. You can just run roughshod over everything and do what needs to be done. And then let the admirals figure out the rest later. You want to be the one getting shit done. Not one of the ones trying to figure out the rest later. It's putting in explicit terms the way that Star Trek has always implicitly treated the admiralty and ambassadors and diplomats and basically anyone who is on a hierarchy above our heroes on the Enterprise. You know, admirals, when they come by, are corrupt or incompetent, and captains of other ships are corrupt and incompetent, but if you are the captain of the Enterprise, you can make a difference. If you get transferred and promoted, you can't make a difference anymore. That is interesting, because they do routinely show other captains as being sort of fucked up in various ways. Captain Tracy tries to kill everyone. Captain Maxwell tries to start a war with the Cardassians. They, they routinely show other captains as being vastly inferior to, you know, our hero Kirk or our hero Picard. On the other hand, when we've seen other Enterprise captains, Captain, even Captain Decker, Captain Harriman, 
you, you can argue Captain Harriman, but I argue he's more of a victim of circumstance. But particularly Captain Decker and Captain Garrett of the Enterprise C, they are never shown in a bad light, even though they're only there for like one bit. They're not shown to be incompetent or crazy or venal or selfish. They are shown to be dedicated, competent commanders. Totally. And I would argue even Harriman is shown to an extent in that light. I mean, he's obviously harangued by circumstance, but he does his best. You know, he takes that deep breath and says, okay, if we're the only ones in range, we're going to go see what we can do. You know, he doesn't say, well, we're powerless, we can't do anything. He says, okay, let's go see what, what can happen. And he tries to come up with all these solutions. He's not afraid to ask for help when he, none of his solutions work. He's not afraid of the look of brand new commander asks the relic for help because he can't do anything. He says, there are people in danger, help me. His heart's in the right place, at least. And I'm given to understand that he's redeemed a little more in the novels. He is. There are later novels that, that sort of try to explain why he went along so easily with these incredibly bad decisions made by the Admiralty, which I'm not sure even needs a further explanation, but they do sort of go into that a little bit. Well, that's what the novels are there for. And then they show him like late, years later in his career where he sort of found himself and found his groove as the captain and is a much more confident and capable commander than he is at, you know, day one on the job, as we see him in Generations. Yeah, we as the viewers kind of caught him on a bad day. Anyone day one of their brand new job is not going to be at their best. No. And Harriman has been particularly hamstrung by the incompetence of his superiors. Let's move on to the finale of the movie, the final act, including the slam-bang action scenes, everything dealing with what's been happening on the Enterprise ever since Picard left. And, of course, this makes six out of seven movies that we had the Klingons. Well, they were set up from the original series to be the Federation's primary enemy. Right. And depending on how you count, we kind of move away from the Klingons a little bit from here. I mean, unless you want to count Worf. Yeah, Worf is still there. But he's right. not the enemy. No, he's, he's, he's friend Klingon. <laughs> and so this is wrapped up in the Duras sisters, Lursa and Bator, and their forever quest to take over the Empire, which is sort of tossed off in one line, but sort of connects a little back to the concerns of the TV show. And of course, their abduction of Geordi and his captivity. Yes, they're, um... Well, they don't actually show it because they cut it out. There was almost an actual torture scene in this movie, but they wound up cutting it out, and so it's on the cutting room floor. I think it's on the deleted scenes on the DVD. Yeah. But there is a pretty good scene with Soren kind of interrogating Jordy a little about his visor. I like that scene because Soren gives a definition of the word normal that I think is the best definition I've ever heard for that word. Oh, yeah. Where he says normal is what everyone else is and you are not. Rather than trying to define normal by any particular set of characteristics, he defines it as a relative term. Which I think is brilliant. And like I said, I think that's the best definition of normal that I have ever heard. Not the least because by that definition, nobody actually is completely normal. Everyone has their own little weird idiosyncrasies. Everyone has the things about them that are not the norm. Right, that definition centers Jordy in this case as a subjective frame of reference. You know, it's about perception. 
Which, of, of course, it is. Well, it's a, it's a relative definition, and it's not an absolute definition. It's not like these sets of characteristics are normal and anyone who differs from them is not. What he's saying is that everyone has things about themselves that are different from most other people. Maybe you need glasses and normal people don't. Maybe you're six foot six and normal people aren't. Maybe you're four foot two and normal people aren't. Maybe you have pink hair and normal people don't. Maybe you're bald and normal people aren't. Everyone has characteristics that would mark them out as not normal. And so, in the end, nobody actually is completely normal. Which exposes normal as sort of a bullshit ideal. Which is a very Star Trek sort of message. To be delivered by the villain, no less. Star Trek villains aren't necessarily stupid. Although, again, wondering about Soren, because of his addiction to the Nexus and his reliance on the idea of it, is he more apathetic than actively malicious? I mean, it's not like he hates the people of Viridian 4 and wants to destroy their star system. It's just, you know, something that gets in the way of what he needs. Yeah, it's not that he actively wants to destroy a planet with 230 million people on it. It's just that he doesn't particularly care if a planet with 230 million people on it gets destroyed. Right, he's, he's just completely apathetic. If he hands Lursa and Bator a weapon that could change the balance of power in the quadrant, who cares? I'm going to the Nexus. Yeah, he's going to be in the Nexus. He doesn't have to deal with it anyway. He's not necessarily immoral, he's amoral. But of course... Whatever amorality he has, he's ultimately reduced to a fist fight with Captain Picard. And then eventually Kirk and Picard. Well, everyone's eventually reduced to a fist fight with Captain Kirk, other than Khan. And when that happened, you complained, so... Well, I still don't think I was actually complaining. I think you're reading a little more into that. You called it a deficiency in the film. I asked if it's a deficiency because I thought it was an interesting question to pose. Also, do you think it's a deficiency that this movie is reduced to a fist fight? Because... You double-talking bastard! I know. I'm gonna give you guff. Because I totally understand that in Toast movies. Because the way that problems are solved in the original series is either, one, Kirk talks the computer into blowing itself up, or, two, Kirk punches the dude. Sometimes Kirk punches a lady, and then talks a computer into blowing up. It's complicated, but, you know, there's a couple of the ways that a lot of, of problems are solved on the original series. Next Gen is a show where we can behave in a somewhat more utopian way. We can talk people down, we can use technobabble solutions to get out of the spatial anomaly. You know, that's the sort of solutions that problems have on Next Gen. So, one of the topics that we're going to revisit with all of these next-gen movies is whether and to what degree it's kind of being shoehorned into an action movie structure. It is, to a great extent. And part of that is because Patrick Stewart wanted to be in more action scenes. He wanted to be the daring-do action star like Kirk was in the original movies. He pushed for that. He pushed for that during the course of the series, and especially once they were making movies. And we'll see that influence increase. I think that's a studio influence, too. Really? I, I think that's the way they want to sell Star Trek movies. You Really? The studio is pushing for Patrick Stewart to be in more fistfights? The studio is pushing for whiz-bang action scenes and things blowing up, I think. 
Exactly. Whiz bang action scenes and things blowing up, not a 70 year old man having a fist fight. Yeah, but I mean, you make the movie with the cast you have. What you just described is what I said before. I'd rather see a space battle than a fist fight. Well, here we had a space battle and a fist fight. A couple of fist fights. The main problem with the fist fights at the end of this movie is that William Shatner is so out of shape compared to three years earlier. And even three years earlier, he was, you know, not the William Shatner of Star Trek Three. That's fair. But by 94, William Shatner at this point is in his 60s. He's just not in the physical shape where you want to watch him try to, like, jump around and have a fist fight. Although I think it is sort of fitting that if this movie is going to be, yet again, another send-off for Captain Kirk, he should get to have one last fist fight. That weird blue guy with his junk on his knee should not be Captain Kirk's last fist fight. Well, his last fist fight was with himself. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, fulfilled his lifelong ambition. That could have been appropriate, but... No, here he gets to have one last fist fight with the bad guy. Gets to knock him down the mountain for a change. He knocks Picard down the mountain four times, but Kirk knocks him down the mountain. Yeah, that's one of those things that you kind of glommed onto when we got the movie on video and you were watching it all, all the time. Say, can you still recite this movie from memory? Not entirely, not anymore. Ah, uh, oh, oh, to think of the halcyon days of 1995. Yeah, summer of 95, I watched this movie probably a hundred times. And I could recite every line of dialogue in the film from memory. Easily. You recited every line of dialogue from memory. You also recited every line from memory while watching the movie on Fast Forward. Yes, I did that! Because the VCR I was using had like a, like a not quite full Fast Forward, but like a times two speed. And so I will put it on times two speed and recited every line of dialogue at the double speed. I remember that. That was fun. Yeah, that's kind of um, trekky athletics, right? Like, like if there was a trek athlon. That's the kind of thing you really only have the time to dedicate yourself to during the summer between high school years. Not like now as an adult. True. Well, hopefully one would have a little more responsibility. Maybe that's something you could go back to in your Nexus fantasy. Yeah, in my Nexus fantasy, I don't have to do anything and I just spend all my time watching Star Trek movies. Then again, what have I been doing for the last three or four months? Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> so, of course, one of the little things that you glommed onto was Picard falling down the mountain over and over again. The other one, of course, was Kirk getting out of his chair over and over again in the opening sequence. Yes. Kirk gets, he stands up, then he sits down, then he stands up, and then he sits down, and he does that a lot. It's almost like McCoy in Star Trek One, where he comes onto the bridge and doesn't say anything, and then leaves, and then comes back onto the bridge, and then doesn't say anything, and then leaves. I think in the TV edit, he says something once in a while, but in the film version, and in the director's edition, he just like comes onto the bridge, leaves, comes onto the bridge, leaves. In the beginning of this movie, something happens, and Kirk stands up like, I'm Captain Kirk! And then the actual captain of the ship starts to deal with the situation, and Kirk sits back down. And then something else happens, he jumps up like, I'm Captain Kirk! And then the actual captain of the ship starts to deal with it, and he sits back down. And Scotty has that line, is there something wrong with your chair? Yeah, they do lampshade that one. But Picard, in this forced confrontation with Soren, where he has to have a fist to cuffsmanship, he falls down the mountain four times. First, he encounters Soren's force field and falls down the mountain. Then, he tries to sneak under the force field and Soren shoots at him with his like little mini photon launcher and blows up all the rock around Picard and makes him fall down the mountain. 
Third, he is fighting Soren on one of those bridges, and Soren headbutts him, and he stumbles back five feet, then turns left and stumbles off the path and falls down the mountain. And then he finally gets sucked into the Nexus, where there are no mountains to fall down, but then he leaves the Nexus and tries to confront Soren again, and Soren just sort of backhands him across the cheek and knocks him down the mountain again. This is all Picard accomplishes in all of these fights with Soren. Soren does all the work he needs to do, he launches his probe, he destroys the star, he enters the Nexus. Even after Picard comes back from the Nexus, Soren still isn't troubled by Picard's attempts at fist and customship. All Picard accomplishes is getting his ass knocked down the mountain. You know, and this is a guy who got in a fist fight with knife-wielding Klingons on Kronos. You know, he's been through some stuff. But, you know, it's a good thing he has Kirk with him. Kirk has a lot more fisticuffsmanship experience. Yes, we, we need Kirk to really take the fisticuffsmanship to the enemy. You know, one last extended fist fight for Captain Kirk. I mentioned earlier that on a mythological level, there are sacrifices to be made for the next generation as an entity to kind of assume this place of prominence. And we have a pair of them at the end of the movie. First, of course, there is the inevitable, I guess you could say, death of Captain Kirk. Inevitable, according to studio executives and Rick Berman. Sure. Where, you know, the generations can meet, but they can't go on together. You know, like there isn't enough room in the saloon for the both of us or something. Now, you said earlier, there's no good way to kill Kirk. How do they do? Not good. People have been thinking about this for 20 years now. Nobody's ever come up with a good way to kill Kirk. Everyone has their own little theory. Well, this is what they should have done. No, that would have sucked. There's no good way to do it when it's forced like this. I mean, if you come up with a story where it just sort of works as part of the story, hey, we could have involved Kirk and he dies and that would advance this plot. But they didn't do that. They just decided they had to kill Kirk in order for the next generation to take off in the movies. And so they tried to shoehorn it in, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, it is kind of shoehorned in. It's just like any other bout of fisticuffsmanship, any other confrontation with the villain of the week, except this time Kirk dies. Yeah. Which they try to invest with meaning. They call back to making a difference, and they make it about the people Kirk is saving... But that never really quite rings true. Well, one reason for that is that we never see any of the people Kirk is saving. We're told, oh, there's 230 million people on Viridian 4. But we don't see any of them. We don't know any of them. Kirk is trying to stop him from launching this probe at the sun. But we don't see any of the people he's saving. We don't feel fear for anybody on screen that these people are going to die if Kirk doesn't accomplish this thing. So that's sort of saps the emotional stakes out of the whole situation to an extent the other problem is obviously that just there's no good way to kill kirk but he's he's has to jump from one bridge part to another and then he falls that's not satisfying yeah i just keep coming back to how satisfying the end of star trek 6 felt exactly that's why i said leonard nimoy and deforest kelly made the right choice Meanwhile, Kirk, of course, always knew he'd die alone, which is kind of harsh on Picard. 
I think if you're going to have Kirk die as some sort of heroic sacrifice, it should have been a heroic sacrifice. Not just the bridge he's on breaks and he falls. Yeah, I understand the thinking behind making it a smaller moment. To a different degree, that's kind of the same thinking behind the meaningless death that Tasha Yar got on Next Gen. Which, I understand the thought behind it, but the way it was done is not great. It's not great, but then again, that was killing off a character that had existed for half of a television season. This, that was killing off, like, the sixth build character from half a television season. This is killing off the top build character from 27 years of one of the two biggest sci-fi franchises in existence. Yeah, true. It's also a pretty extreme way that Kirk has to commit his future to posterity again. It would have been so much better if they just let Star Trek VI be Star Trek VI and then let Generations be a Next Generation movie. They didn't have to involve Kirk at all. It would have been an improvement. Sure. Also, they had the perfect opportunity there where they're all on these rocks and, and Picard keeps getting knocked down the mountain... And this control pad falls somewhere. They had the perfect opportunity. Kirk could have done some of the rock climbing he did in Star Trek V. Why does he have to, like, crawl across this rickety bridge? He, he could have done the rock climbing and climbed up to retrieve the pad. Yeah, we keep bringing up Star Trek V. That movie really fits in better than a lot of people think. <laughs> of course, Bill Shatner would go on to make another career writing Star Trek novels with Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens doing a lot of the writing. But Captain Kirk would, of course, return in a novel ingeniously titled The Return. Yes, Captain Kirk... Captain Kirk's body would be stolen by the Borg and revitalized, and then he would, like, return, but he'd be sort of in Borg control, but not really in Borg control... And then Ambassador Spock would have to, like, mind meld with him to break the board control. But then that would go all haywire because Ambassador Spock had previously mind melded with a Borg called V'ger. And that was all in one novel. The There were nine of these things. And, and the next-gen crew was there as well. <laughs> the, the Shatner Reeve Stevens' novels are chock full like, they are full of plot, and they are full of characters, and they are full of continuity, and they are just full. It's, it's kind of like a sideways branch of the Star Trek novel line, which is kind of interesting in its own respect, but I don't imagine we'll be doing a podcast about it. They are a hoot if you're in the right sort of mindset to accept them for what they are. Yes. It's almost like Star Trek Crackfic. It is very much like Star Trek Crackfic, except it's by William Shatner and two very experienced published Star Trek authors. <laughs> the other symbolic sacrifice that's made in this movie is a big one in terms of setting and in terms of aesthetics, and that is, of course, the Enterprise. Oh, we're going to get back to what's been happening since Picard beamed down? Let's get back to what's been happening since Picard beamed down. And by the way, Picard beamed down is some sort of weird prisoner exchange scheme where Lursa and Bator gave up Geordi 
in return for Picard, but they had to put Picard on the surface first so he could, you know, yell at Soren a little. That whole thing makes no sense. Well, it makes sense because Lursa and Bator wanted a way to get Jordy back on the ship so that they could use the little spy thing. Jordy's no use to them as a bugged spy if he's not back on the Enterprise. Sure, but then the whole thing where they get Picard and then just send him right down to the planet just seems a little clumsy. Yeah, but they don't care. They're not actually interested in getting Picard. They're interested in getting Geordi back on the Enterprise without the Enterprise cluing in that they actually want him there because they're spying on him. And this is their perfect opportunity. I suppose. Plus it gets the more experienced commander off the ship for when they attack them later. Bonus. And so, when they do attack the ship by bugging Geordi's visor, which maybe puts an idea in someone's head that that's a thing that enemies can do. Well, by the next movie, he doesn't have the visor anymore. Oh, oh, we'll cover that one. He, he switches to a different prosthetic that makes him look more normal. Exactly. Although I think it is kind of an interesting point that the writers didn't necessarily think of, but I thought of because I'm probably a bigger Star Trek nerd than the writers. Although these writers, you know, Ron D. Moore, I don't want to... Yeah. But in every Borg episode, whenever the Borg adjusts to the shields and figure out a way to cut through the shields, they always deal with that by rotating the shield frequency so that the Borg have to continually readjust. And nobody apparently thinks to do this when the Klingons are able to cut through the shields. Nobody says, let's readjust the frequency. Right, well, I suppose they don't really know what the issue is there. The issue is that the weapons are flying straight through the shields. Adjust the frequency. Well, maybe they've gotten the frequency, maybe they've sabotaged the shields somehow. You know, who knows? They know the shields are up. They have ways of telling if their shields are up. But regardless, we get the space battle with the Bird of Prey, which is, as far as space battles go, kind of short and abrupt. Well, it's rather one-sided. And gives birth to the term that I invented, where Riker Rikers the ship. Go into that a little bit. The, well, the Rikering. Well, that's a term that I started using. For when you loan something to someone or when you leave someone in charge of something for a brief period of time and they manage to completely destroy it. Number one, I'm going to beam down to the planet. You, you just have to orbit up here for a little while and I'll be back later. And Riker manages to get the ship blown up. Now, not only does the ship get blown up, the ship gets blown up and then crashes on the planet. In a fantastic, fantastic sequence. I mean, that is... You talk about the budget in this movie. That is a special effects triumph. Oh, the yeah, entire... the crash sequence is incredible. Absolutely. And I am, like, virtually certain that that stems from Ron Moore and Brandon Braga thinking, well, what are we going to do for the finale of this movie? And at some point, leafing through the copy of Mike Okuda's tech manual that they keep lying around the next-gen writer's room and saw the little tidbit that Okuda put in there, in the section on saucer separation, that in an emergency, the saucer section could make a crash landing on a planet, and decided, we're in the movies now, we have a little bit of a budget, we can do what we want, let's crash the damn ship. <laughs> well, it's a good choice. Yeah. It also shows how the Enterprise-D and the original Enterprise are treated very differently by their stories and by their crews. The Enterprise-D... When the ship blows up, but they're able to evacuate it, and then the saucer crashes on the planet, but their casualties are light, that's treated as a triumph. When the original Enterprise blows up in Star Trek Three and everyone survives, 
that's a tragedy. They are so morose after that. McCoy has to give Kirk a pep talk to get him back to dealing with the situation. Whereas when the Enterprise D blows up, but they manage to evacuate the star drive before the warp core breach, and they crash the saucer and have very few casualties, that's a triumph. <laughs> that's a, well, no harm done then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The destruction of the Enterprise in Star Trek Three was an elegiac occasion. It was a moment of profundity. And the destruction of the Enterprise in Generations is much more mechanistic. You know, in terms of the ongoing story of Next Gen, the ship is how we go to the Strange New Worlds, but we still have the friends we made along the way. The it's original Starship Enterprise was at least the fourth biggest character on that show. The Enterprise D was a tool that was used. Yeah, exactly. I mean, after Picard is recovered from the mountain without falling down a fifth time, you know, he doesn't mourn the loss of his ship, he gets his photo album. Because what's important is remembering the people. Although that ship did look great on the movie-level effects, on the big screen. Yes. Oh, it looked beautiful. There are a couple of shots of the ship that are reused from the TV show, and they do kind of stand out. But the new shots that ILM did of the model that ILM originally built in 1987 mm -hmm. are just beautiful. Oh, yes. All the effects in this movie look good. I mean, you could criticize parts of the crash sequence because it doesn't, maybe doesn't look as real. You could tell it's a model. But other than that, all the effects in this movie look really good. All the, the ship effects, the space effects, even the Nexus stuff. Oh yeah, the Nexus the stellar cartography scene. The Nexus as a twenty-plus-year-old CG effect totally stands up. Yeah, I think it's interesting when they crash the saucer that the little glass dome over the bridge shatters, but the windows on the front edge of the saucer that take out the entire forest, those windows are still intact. Well, you know, pressure variances. Do you want to say something about the dumb, sexist jerks who point out, you know, ha ha ha, Troy crashed the ship? Not only did she crash the ship, but later when they're searching for survivors in the wreckage, she can't tell the difference between a human life sign and Data's cat. Yeah, there's only time to get like a foot and a half away from a ship that's blowing up, and she got the ship on a gliding path to the surface. She did alright. I'm not saying she did a bad job. She, um, you know, guided them to their crash landing. You know, she's not the one who Rikered the ship. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about that more in Nemesis, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's not inaccurate to say she piloted the ship once and crashed it. Yeah, but that's a pretty selective interpretation. Yeah, but it's fun to make fun of people. I'm just saying there's an unfortunate undertone to a lot of people making fun of Counselor Troy. I know, you can't even say, well, she piloted the ship once and crashed it, because then there's a whole slew of other people take that, and, oh, that's why you shouldn't let women drive. <laughs> and, and so you can't even have fun mocking a character. Yeah, I mean, spend two seconds on any official Star Trek Facebook page. Good goodness. Although it's, it is interesting that there's this bridge full of people, and have we talked about that yet? Oh, we should. All of a sudden, they're on a movie budget, and what they did with their movie budget was they hired about ten times as many extras. 
Yes. Ten forward looks like the planet Gideon from Tos. Just packed with people where they can't even move around. The bridge has like ten extra people at these new workstations they've installed along the sidewalls. It's just filled with people. And yet even out of all of these people, Riker chooses the ship's counselor to take the helm during this crash sequence. You mean 10 Forward looks a little more like a bar in a ship that has a thousand people on it? Maybe. If, like, one-tenth of the ship is in the bar. Well, how many other bars are there? Don't these people have quarters? Or holodecks? Well, it goes on a sailing boat? Well, I'm sure there are lots of people in the holodecks, too. And in the bowling alley, and the swimming pool, and everything else they have on this ship. You know, walking through the Arboretum. Even the Klingon ship has, like, dozens of extra people cramming the bridge. Yep, they definitely got more extras for a ton of these places. Also, it seems that at some point between All Good Things and Generations, all the lights on the Enterprise went out. Yeah, that is a distinct shift going into filming for a movie. Like, they really wanted to show off how much better the film cameras work in low-light conditions. I mean, it doesn't even make sense because the Enterprise A was always brightly lit. The Enterprise B in the beginning of the movie is brightly lit. The Enterprise B is more brightly lit, I think, to call back to some of the original series movies. Although 6 is pretty darkly lit as well. But also to create contrast for when you go to the Enterprise D and all the lights are out. I guess they were trying to make like a contrast from how it was lit for the TV show, but... It just didn't make sense for everything to be that fucking dark. I've also read that supposedly one of the things going into that decision was the idea that these sets have all been used for seven years of a TV show. And so they might be getting a little threadbare in a way that doesn't come across on TV, but would come across in a movie. But having watched the seventh season next-gen Blu-rays in glorious high definition, I do not see that. Also interesting to note that the, uh, oh, we haven't gotten into costuming yet, but they designed a new communicator pin for the movie. Except the 10 Forward set still has the old TNG series communicator insignia on the doors. Well, so does the Federation President's office in Star Trek VI. That logo is just eternal. <laughs> One of the other aesthetic shifts, in addition to the lighting and all of that, is the addition of Deep Space Nine uniforms. Yeah, the uniforms are a trial in this movie. They are extremely variable. I mean, the story of how they wound up with the uniforms that they use in this movie. Because oh. they originally designed new uniforms for this movie. Yes. Which was sort of like the TNG design, but on like a Toast Movies style wraparound jacket. Yeah, it also had that panel in the front that would open. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like the action figures they made for this movie, the plastic is molded for the wraparound jacket, and then it's just been painted with a regular uniform. Because, <laughs> what was it, they had like some sort of accident on set and destroyed all the new uniforms they made or something like that? There are varying stories. One story goes that they had a fire in the costume department and a lot of the uniforms were ruined. Another story goes that Rick Berman or someone else at the studio just didn't like them after they had been designed and made. And they started filming with those, actually. 
because a couple of the deleted scenes, there's one deleted scene in particular that I'm thinking of featuring Jordy on the Klingon ship, and he's wearing the new uniform that was designed for the movie. So they not only designed and made several of these things, they started filming with them. It must have been particularly early in production, because this movie was not given a very expansive production time, because it was moving on right from the TV show. I think they finished filming the series finale and then had like a week off and they were filming the movie. But the new uniforms were abandoned. It might also have been that the new uniforms were supposed to be used for Voyager premiering the next year. I mean, I can only assume and they decided that they didn't like those uniforms for the people they were casting for Voyager, and so decided to keep the DS9 uniforms. I don't know that they would have changed the movie production for that, though. Yeah, maybe. But at any rate, after they decided to change the uniforms away from the new ones that had been designed, they only had the costume department make two for this movie. They made new uniforms for Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner, Everyone else was just wearing whatever they had off the rack to use on Deep Space Nine. Really? Because Patrick Stewart's DS9 uniform does not fit him at all. Sometimes it looks a little weird, yeah. It's way too big. The real mismatch is Jonathan Frakes wearing Avery Brooks's uniform from DS9, which he is at least one size too big for, because Frakes is a beefy dude. That doesn't look nearly as bad. There are scenes, especially when Riker and Worf are in engineering, where you can really tell that that shirt is tight. Yeah, but nothing looks as bad as Picard. The front of his shirt is, like, stretched too much so that the little V in the front is pulled apart awkwardly, and yet the back of the shirt is way too, like, big and blousey and puffed away from him. It just looks awful. Maybe that's sort of an uncomfortable transition. And maybe that's a very good reason why they no longer had those uniforms by the time the next movie came around. Yeah, they designed new uniforms again for First Contact and actually used them. Yes. And made DS9 start using them. I think Worf and Crusher are the only ones that don't wind up in a DS9-style uniform before the end of the movie. Everyone else has them at one point or another. Does Troy ever get one? I think she's in her TV uniform the whole time. Hmm. Since she finally got a uniform toward the end of the TV show. That's a good point. You might be right about that. Yeah, because they were using things off the rack for DS9, and I don't think Gates McFadden or Marina Sirtis would have fit into Terry Farrell's uniform. And Michael Dorn wouldn't have fit into... Cole Meany's? Cole uniform? No. <laughs> It's sort of ironic because Michael Dorn would later be on DS9 wearing DS9 uniforms, but he didn't get to wear one in Generations. Yes, well, by then they could splurge a little and make one for him. <laughs> so, before we close this up, let's talk about the score for this movie, as we're going to for all of these things. Now, this score was by Dennis McCarthy, who had scored about half of the episodes of Next Generation, and would go on to score the TV series until the bitter end in 2005. For 18 years, he was working on Star Trek TV shows. He's written more music for the franchise than any other composer by far. And he got to score one of the movies. This is the first time that our no ex-composer Star Trek career retrospective isn't a joke. 
Yeah, definitely. Because Eidelman did one movie, Roseman did one movie, James Horner did two movies, but Dennis McCarthy actually has a Star Trek career worthy of retrospecting. A very long Star Trek career indeed, and this is, in our series on the movies, our one kind of window into it. Now, this is one of the scores that you have a lot of affinity for, right? Oh yeah, I love this score. The thing that I think this score shows is what McCarthy could do without some of the restrictions that were put on the TV shows. He got to branch out a little more in DS9, and indeed, in the DS9 soundtrack collection that was released a couple of years ago, if you listen to the McCarthy disc of that collection, he's writing material for Generations for a few years. Yes, if you listen to like the seventh season of Next Generation, and the second, third, fourth, fifth season of DS9... There's a lot of music that's very similar to Generations. Now, I'm not sure there's a lot that's similar to it at the end of Next Generation, because... Oh, there's parts of that All Good Things score that are pretty similar. Okay, that's fair. But this is such a growth past that, because some of the restrictions put on the television scoring was that recurring themes were verboten... Rick Berman, just as a matter of personal taste, didn't like a score that asserted itself a great deal in the show. That's why Ron Jones was fired in the fourth season. And so that aesthetic kind of settled on Next Gen. But in this movie, McCarthy gets to add a few really nice themes. He gets to use the Alexander Courage fanfare from the original series several times. Yeah. Which he did get to use in the TV show occasionally, but very occasionally as it went on. Yeah, very occasionally. They wouldn't even let him use the TV series theme tune in the music for the TV series. Right, the motion picture theme that was used for Next Generation was in the episodic scores occasionally through the first couple of seasons, but that melted away as well. This score is very different from the other Star Trek scores. It's not like a bombastic, heroic score, like most of the movies had. I mean, Star Trek IV had, you know, the sort of more light-hearted comedy score, which was different from most of the others, but most of the other Star Trek scores sort of fall into that pattern, to one extent or another, of the sort of bold, heroic action movie Star Trek score. This score very much feels more closely related to the sort of ethereal quality of the Nexus, rather than, like, the bold action heroics of a Star Trek action movie. I love that Nexus material. The sort of flowing choral lines that run throughout that piece are just beautiful. Well, it's not just the Nexus material, though. Even the action cues, even the Jumping the Ravine and the Overture track, even those have more of an ethereal quality than, like, Horner's Star Trek II main theme or any of Eidelman's music from Star Trek VI, or the motion picture theme from Goldsmith. All of this music in this movie has that sort of airy, ethereal quality to it. Jumping the Ravine is a track that I think is really, really well done, because it starts off rather heroic. It has sort of a noble sense about it. It's really kind of uplifting as Kirk jumps the ravine the first time and then looks back because something is missing. And then when he goes back to jump over it again and really decides that something is absolutely missing, this is wrong, 
the music repeats the same melody, but it's much more deflated. And the chorus comes in, which is the symbol of the nexus in the music, which kind of underlines something is missing, this isn't heroic heraldry, and these voices are coming in because the nexus is what's influencing this. That kind of underlines what the movie is doing in that scene very, very well. Hmm. This is also a score that, in some discussion circles, was rather dismissed for a long time. There was kind of a sense that the movie was a little dodgy, a lot of people didn't like the movie very much, and they kind of dismissed the score as being by the TV composer. Yeah, that's... yeah. Which I think think is really unfortunate. Yeah, they basically shat on it because it was done by the composer from the TV series... Just like they shat on the movie because it was directed by the guy from the TV series. And it was produced by the people from the TV series. And so they just... People like to judge things based on their preconceptions rather than actually watching the thing. And that influences how they feel when they do actually watch it. But this is a score that I think got a lot more respect. I think a lot of people kind of revisited it when it was re-released in its complete form in 2012 by GNP Crescendo Records, the same label that put it out in 94. I remember when they finally started releasing the Star Trek expanded discs. I think Wrath of Khan was the first one. Yes. And I said, oh good, are they finally going to release an expanded Generations? And you scoffed at me. Yes, I And you said, they'll never do Generations. They'll do Wrath of Khan. They might do the Goldsmith scores. They're not going to bother with Generations. Well, yes. I underestimated, in my earlier days of fandom, the dedication that record labels and fans would have for completeness. I was foolish to do this. You underestimated the dedication of nerds to completeness. Not only did I underestimate the dedication of nerds to completeness... I underestimated the Star Trek fan boyishness of so many people responsible for creating these boutique record labels that put out a lot of these things. I underestimated their dedication to completeness as far as going to the people running GNP Crescendo Records and saying, we're releasing all the Star Trek music, let's work together on the music that you have. (laughs) I underestimated the film score market as it exists. It is a matter of much discussion that these labels releasing archival film music are releasing a lot of it. And so you tend to get completeness for a lot of things that you wouldn't have thought would be coming out in complete form ten years ago even. And so, yes, they started the Star Trek releases with Star Trek II and followed it up with three, which you think, okay, you're doing the James Horner scores, that's awesome. I can't name off the top of my head the exact order that things came in. I believe the next one was five. Pretty sure it was in the first few. You figure, okay, they're doing the Goldsmith scores, that's great. But then, of course, the push came to do all of them, and... From what I've read, that was a directive from the studio as well. They figured if we're putting out these things, Paramount Pictures finally opened up their vaults, and they figured we can make more money off Trekkies, release everything. 
And so, you know, a set of people, uh, Lucas Kendall as an album producer and many people who were working on many of these releases got together with GNP Crescendo that put out the scores for Generations First Contact Insurrection to get expanded editions for them. They worked with Varese Sarah Band on Nemesis. And so this push came, and I was very glad to see the reception that Generations got when it came out in expanded form. That kind of warmed my heart. That a lot of people, I think, reconsidered the score, and a lot of people listened to it with fresher ears. Yeah, I always loved This was actually the first Star Trek score album that I ever owned. I bought it off a friend of mine for like five bucks because he got it and he hated it. And I'm like, well, give it to me! Give me! <laughs> it's an interesting album because on the original release, about half the album is like sound effects. Like the door chime and the phaser blast and the Nexus warble and the communicator chirp. And all these sound effects thrown on the end of the album. And it's still there on the re-release. They like included them again. I think that's a contractual thing. Like, they have to include, like, the entire original album on a lot of these expanded releases. But the sound effects library, as it's called, is there. And, you know, you can use whatever you want from it for your uh, phone notifications. I use a couple of them. It's convenient, I guess. <laughs> it's certainly better than the synth bird call from Star Trek V. Oh, the synth bird call is another one of my phone notifications, but okay. One of the uh, expanded tracks on the re-release version is a track entitled Data and the Emotions, which I thought was the name of a doo-wop group. That may very well be the name of Brent Spiner's doo-wop group. <laughs> you know, did he ever release a second album after old Yellow Eyes is back? You know, he could get You know, he could get backup singers. Now, you mentioned how the tone of this score is different from a lot of other Star Trek scores, and I think... That is really evident no place more than it is in the main title, which in complete contrast to almost all of the other Star Trek scores, which have, you know, presentations of their main themes, big bombastic versions of these things, Generation starts on a very moody note. The main theme is introduced very gently through kind of ominous tones. And the Nexus material is actually introduced a little ominously in that tone as well. Which I think is a very interesting and very different way to start the movie. We discussed in Star Trek IV how much product placement they were able to put in that movie because it was set in modern day. And then we didn't think we'd see any more in the movies, but then in Star Trek V, Levi's jeans popped up and surprised us. Is the Dom Perignon champagne bottle at the beginning of Generations product placement? Is there some sort of contract with Dom Perignon that there's a reason that's a Dom Perignon bottle and not a Mums bottle or a Chateau Picard bottle? I would like to get some Chateau Picard wine. You'd think some Trekkie would be selling Chateau Picard wine. You'd think Paramount would be selling it. <laughs> you know, right alongside the marshmallow toasters. But do we know how that champagne bottle came to be a Dom Perignon champagne bottle? I actually do not. Hmm. By the way, you actually can buy Chateau Picard wine. <laughs> Turns out somebody is. Yes. <laughs> Maybe we should have checked that before we scoffed at the fact that nobody was doing that. I really need to stop doubting Nerd Boy's completeness. <laughs> so, in wrapping up this movie, how do you think they did in dealing with these themes of mortality and what we leave behind? 
actually a better job than it gets a lot of credit for. That was one of the things people bagged on the movie for in 1994, was they didn't quite get the theme of the movie. I think maybe they were focused too hard on the two captains thing, and didn't quite understand the themes that the writers are trying to weave through the thing. But I think they actually do a reasonable job of weaving that theme into most of the characters. I mean, we discussed earlier how it involves with Soren's attempts to get back into the Nexus, about Kirk thinking about his legacy and then his Nexus fantasy about lost opportunities, about Picard thinking about his family legacy. Uh, there are other bits. Lursa and Bator are still trying to take over the Empire because that's what they see as their destiny and their legacy to leave behind. Riker talks about how he always thought he'd be captain of the Enterprise-D one day. That was sort of the future he saw for himself. It really does weave into a lot of these small scenes, even characters that don't get much coverage in the movie, like Riker. The theme still weaves into their actions and their statements and their mindset in the movie. And I think it's wrapped up rather nicely, if not entirely subtly, by Picard when he gives that little speech when he's with Riker in the ruins of the Enterprise at the end of the movie. Where he sort of cites Soren and he says, Someone once told me time is a predator that stalks us all our lives, but I rather believe it's a companion that comes with us on the journey to remind us to cherish every moment. That's sort of the viewpoint Picard comes out of it with. After dealing with the death of his brother and his nephew, after meeting James Kirk and then watching him die, after seeing his ship crash, this is the perspective that Picard comes away with. It's no use trying to be immortal because we're not immortal. None of us are going to live forever. And what we leave behind in this life is not as important as how we've lived. That's the true legacy, is the example you set. Right, and that's a perspective he comes to not only through his grief, but through seeing what Soren was driven to when his grief inspired him to try to live forever. He saw Soren try to live forever, and he saw Kirk willingly sacrifice himself. Kirk wasn't like, well, I'm James T. Kirk, I'm going to do everything. Kirk was like, how can I help? How can I make a difference? I also think it's very significant that Picard ties in the idea of what we leave behind because Next Generation is a story that can't really have an ending. Like, the overarching story of the Next Generation is about exploring, is about going to that next world, encountering that next anomaly, doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's very cyclical. Next Generation is a story that can't have an ending. And so what Picard does here is he ties that into the torch passing that's done from the original series to the Next Generation because the story of Star Trek is unending to the idea that our legacies outlive us and the story continues. It's very much like the end of All Good Things as, as well, the next-gen finale, where it's an ending that's not an ending because there can't be an ending. Well, because the next generation is not about this group of people to an extent. And we sort of discussed that with the ships earlier, where the original series was a lot about the ship, whereas in Next Generation, the ship is just a tool that takes people places. The original series is about Kirk and Spock and McCoy. The Next Generation is, again, it's about the characters to an extent, but less so. It's also about what they're doing. It's about their endeavor. It's about the growth and development of humanity and the Federation in larger scope. It's about the advance of civilization. And so 
the story of the Enterprise D is ending, but the story of the advancement of the Federation is continuing. The story of Kirk and Riker and Data on this ship is ending, but the greater story is continuing. It's much like Zothrus tries to talk about in War Without End Part 2 on Babylon 5. You know, this story is over and this story is continuing, but you put them all together and they make the much greater story. And TNG was always to an extent about the greater story. It wasn't about Picard facing off against Q. It was about Q judging humanity and whether they deserved to continue to advance into the universe. And so that greater story continues, regardless of whether or not the Enterprise D has a place in it anymore or not. Regardless of whether or not James Kirk has a place in it anymore or not. Regardless of whether or not Picard and Riker have a place in it anymore or not, that story will continue. Well said. Well said. And we must cherish every moment. As dear listeners, I hope you've cherished every moment of this podcast. That'd be an accomplishment. Yes. We will leave you now, and we will be back soon on the next exciting episode of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. Life forms. Where are you?